It's a complicated political marriage at this point. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. This is our weekly roundup, where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. On today's panel, returning to the roundup, is Liam Donovan. Liam has nearly two decades of experience working at the intersection of politics and policy. He's currently a principal of Bracewell LLP and spent two election cycles at the National Republican Senatorial Committee, where we work together. And he was the regional finance director for Senator John Cornyn. He's also the host of The Lobby Shop. Liam, it's great to have you back. Good to be back, Ron. And making his Politicology debut, Alex Thompson. Alex is Axios's national political correspondent covering the 2024 election. He was previously a White House correspondent for Politico, where he created their daily West Wing playbook. Before that, he wrote for Vice News and assisted Maureen Dowd at the New York Times and researched and helped edit her New York Times bestselling book, The Year of Voting Dangerously. Alex, welcome to Politicology. So good to be here. And a little later on, we'll be joined by Mark Polymeropoulos, who served in the CIA for 26 years in operational field and leadership assignments across the Middle East, Europe, and Asia. He's an expert in counterterrorism, covert action, and human intelligence collection, and is the author of Clarity in Crisis, Leadership Lessons from the CIA. Up first this week, Donald Trump's completely expected landslide victory in the Iowa caucus and some of the very bad takes about what the results mean. Then I'll patch in Mark and we'll look at the rising tensions in the Middle East and the chance of further escalation. Later, we'll discuss the Democratic primary race, New Hampshire feeling the impact of the Biden-friendly primary calendar and what a win would actually look like for him on Tuesday. Then our panel will tell us about the developments they're watching and why. After the main show, we'll tape our Politicology Plus episode where we're going to talk about the World Economic Forum's annual meeting in Davos and the garish displays of wealth when the wealth gap is widening. To join us for that discussion, plus more ad-free episodes, all on a private podcast feed, go to politicology.com slash plus, or just open the show notes for this episode and click the link right at the top. Okay, on Monday, Iowa held the first contest in the least interesting Republican primary cycle. And as we were discussing the show, I actually thought about tweeting the yawn emoji because the actual result was not, not in doubt. The race was so uncompetitive that there were caucus sites that hadn't even started speeches when the race was called for Trump. The AP, Fox, CNN, CBS News, and NBC all called the caucuses for Trump around 7.30, around a half hour after they were scheduled to start. Reporter Ben Jacobs, who was actually at a caucus site, he's been on the show before, tweeted that they hadn't started speeches when the race was called. Uh, the DeSantis campaign was very upset that the race was called for Trump so early. I should note there's a big difference between calling the race before everyone has voted, like on Monday, and calling the race after voting has ended based on the early returns like Trump complained about Fox doing in Arizona in 2020. Because calling the race before people voted can actually impact the way people vote. But in any case, Trump won with 51% of the vote, which means that 49% did vote for someone other than Trump at the caucuses. And I think that number has been mischaracterized. Dave Weigel from Semaphore pointed out that uh, on X, formerly Twitter, that several of the Trump alternatives are aligned with Trump. So if you look at, you know, Trump plus DeSantis plus Vivek, you end up with 80% of the vote. Uh, and, uh, and my ride or die at Politicology here, Mike Madrid pointed out, this is the right way to look at the numbers. Uh, but that 19% is still a devastating number for Trump. So Vivek is now out. Also, he's endorsed Donald Trump. 
What have you made of this idea that somehow 49% of Iowa Republicans were ready to move on from Trump because they voted for someone else on Monday night, Liam? I think uh, it is simultaneously a cope from people on the right who want to get rid of Trump, and it is a motivated reasoning among those on the left who want to see signs that actually he's weak and that the general election polling is a mirage. Um, Look, if anybody believed that Trump was going to cruise to 50 percent of the vote in a state that he didn't even compete in and, mind you, lost in 2016, they would have they wouldn't have gotten into this race. I mean, this is I I think we're we're fine to judge this as an incumbent campaign if we are consistent in that judgment. Nobody treated this that way. And so it ends up being this sort of circular proposition that, um, you know, had had it been expected that Trump would vanquish his you know, what at one point had looked like a quite formidable challenge with all the attendant hype around it, um, then, uh, you know, then we wouldn't have had this tested. I think there's sort of a a Schrodinger's element of um, if left untested, the incumbent looks strong. Um, The reason we never test that proposition is people don't want to run headlong into a buzzsaw and lose. It's part of why um, Biden hasn't been tested. You know, you look at you look at numbers saying two thirds of Democrats want a different choice um, and you have somebody like Dean Phillips jump in and say, hey, here I am, you know, come come vote for me. People don't actually want that. And it's why some of the even the theoretical polling against Biden is like Biden still gets people might want something else in the abstract. But when forced to choose between you know, the guy you're not crazy about and the alternatives, you're probably going to go with the the guy you're not crazy about. Now, I think that the notable thing is if you're looking for signs of weakness, the question is which of these people won't end up voting for Trump if and when it's a binary choice between him and Biden. And the only group where that's even a question is that 19% you mentioned is that Haley, that Haley cohort. So I think if you're digging into those numbers, that's why the Weigel frame is the correct one. The DeSantis people are going to have no problem getting behind Trump. Uh, they would have had a problem getting behind Haley, perhaps. Um, but I think that's the question is that cohort in Iowa that the exit polling said would back Biden over Trump um, if Haley's not the nominee. That's the sort of people that you have to think at scale. Is that going to be something that affects this election? I think that's what we need to come away with uh, as the signal. Alex, how long are we? Well, I should mention Trump beat DeSantis by 30 points, Haley by 32 points. And the New York Times pulled out, you know, their their famous needle to show the likelihood that DeSantis or Haley was going to come in second place. Uh, So my question really from a from a journalist perspective is how long are we? And I mean, the broad we going to pretend like uh, you know, who's finishing 30 plus points behind the front runner actually matters in this race. Because I can tell you, uh, as a strategist, I've been really frustrated and sort of like throwing up my hands at the way the media has been covering this primary as if it's a real primary. Well, I would defend the robust coverage up until Iowa because people hadn't voted yet. We were just depending on polls, even though I think we all saw the writing on the wall and you know, Trump is basically a, a semi-incumbent. Um, but I think, it, you know, it was worth really, you know, probing these candidates um, and giving it robust coverage. Now, to answer your question, how long are we going to wait? Um, you know, the the over answer is basically South Carolina. And that's like the longest it's going to go. If Trump is as 30 points ahead in South Carolina, um, this is over. 
And I don't think you're going to have any media really give any credence to anyone challenging Trump. I think also this could mostly be over um, next Wednesday. If uh, Trump beats Nikki Haley by double digits in New Hampshire, which demographically is by far her best state and sort of an outlier in terms of the Republican primary electorate, both in its level of college education and the fact that you have independents voting there, you know, we could be talking about uh, the general election matchup, um, you know, starting uh, next Wednesday. Okay, I'm going to dial Mark in, guys. Hi there. Hey. Okay, you're here with uh, Liam and Alex and I, and uh, we uh, were just tuning into the Middle East. So as of last night, it looks like the, uh, the U.S. has launched a fourth attack on the Houthi rebels. Uh, it feels like things are escalating more quickly than we would have anticipated can you sort of zoom out and give us some context for what's going on right now and and sort of answer the question that I think is on a lot of people's minds? Are we sort of barreling toward uh, the U.S. sort of being deeply involved in another war in the Middle East? So, Ron, it's a great question, and, and I think the answer is not yet. And so it's easy for us to say, okay, we're, we're now based, we're now in a regional war. Um, there's, there, we're in a regional proxy war with Iran. That's maybe a little more accurate. I would just call it, you know, kind of this low intensity conflict is, is boiling up a little bit. But that, you know, we don't see shooting wars across, you know, you know, multiple um, uh, areas of operation yet. And and I'll just throw into all this, which of course you cannot help but uh, kind of shake your head. Who had on their bingo card an Iran Pakistan <laughs> exchange across border? So you know, really interesting times. Um, a lot for the National Security Council for the Biden administration to, to, to work on. But I don't think the kind of this end of day scenario um, is warranted yet. OK, and and why not? Can you walk us through what's been happening and why? Sure. So, you know, let's break it up. And, and, and if you I mean, you think back to what uh, the Israeli defense minister Gallant said several weeks ago that that Israel was fighting a six front war. Um, but in essence, now the United States is uh, is, is fighting a three front war. But again, low intensity. And so let's start with kind of the Iranian proxies in Syria and Iraq. And so, you know, our U.S. bases, uh, both uh, in Iraq, maybe numbering 2000 plus personnel, Syria, several hundred, but they're being hit by Iranian proxies. and We're firing back and we have to, you know, that we have to kind of reestablish that deterrence. That's important. And then you move to the Red Sea with Yemen and with the Houthis, who, again, another Iranian proxy who essentially have uh, decided to you know, almost shut down international shipping. 14% of you know, the kind of shipping goes through that area. And so the U.S. was absolutely obliged to take action because the Houthis were, were uh, you know, hitting uh, you know, foreign flag vessels, um, also shooting uh, occasionally uh, ballistic missiles even and, and drones at, at U.S. ships. So we had to take this action. You know, I think that it would be naive to think that the U.S., you know, the first U.S. strikes on Houthi targets um, was just going to be a one-off. Uh, you know, this might take a couple rounds, but we have to kind of reestablish deterrence. And, um, uh, you know, there's no desire for escalation, certainly on the United States part. Um, I think the key is in Tehran, because at the end of the day, the Iranians really are pulling the strings here. Okay, I have one other question for you, and then I'll see if uh, Liam and Alex have have questions here to get to. But I'm wondering what it says that the Houthis so far have only been firing on uh, U.S. and European vessels and have basically left the Chinese and the Russian vessels alone? 
Well, I mean, I think that is certainly kind of, you know, by design. And, you know, there's a, there's a big debate now that you see in the press. And I, I, I you know, I think we're almost have this uh, a little bit of, of wordsmithing here. Some word salad is, you know, the degree in which the Iranians are, are dictating uh, Houthi actions. And so, you know, the Houthis are firing at ships, occasionally firing at U.S. Uh, naval ships. The Iranians are providing tactical intelligence, but I think the administration is bent over backwards saying that they don't see the Iranians kind of directing day to day. You know, in essence, I'm not so sure about that. But then it goes to, you know, what are Iranian goals? And, of course, Iran's alliance, um, certainly with, uh, with, with Russia as well. And the Chinese, uh, you know, uh, 100% happy to, to see kind of uh, uh, the, US, the U.S. struggling. So there is some great power competition in here. But essentially, this really goes back to kind of a, this, this struggle between the United States and Iran. And, it, you know, the ball really is in the Iranian court. I mean, there's been a lot that's said that Iran doesn't want to escalate. But um, one of the things that kind of concerns me and I think concerns many others is what if one of these, you know, uh, Houthi, you know, drone or, or, or cruise missile, ballistic missiles actually hits a U.S. naval vessel, kills American military. Are we going to just retaliate against the Houthis? We're doing that already. I think that's the chance where things spiral out of control and we're going to have to hit targets uh, in, in Iran. And so that's kind of the kind of the, the key flashpoint there. Let's flip over just for a second to uh, kind of uh, Israel and, and, and not just Israel. Yeah. Gaza and Hamas, but what's happening in the north. And that's the other big flashpoint if you, if you worry about some kind of big confrontation. And that's the notion that the Israelis, who have 80,000 of their citizens um, displaced, uh, certainly are kind of climbing the escalatory ladder with Hezbollah. And if, again, uh, uh, Iran, who in essence is going to call the shots on this key issue, if, if ever Hezbollah was to rain uh, ballistic missiles, and these are not rockets that Hamas fires from Gaza, these are ballistic missiles, um, into into Israel, I think that that U.S. carrier group, the U.S. subs with you know, with uh, with Tom 150 Tomahawk missiles, um, uh, or kind of the combined power of uh, of that of that naval strike group, they're going to get involved. Now that's the other way the U.S. can get involved in this war. So, um, you know, lots to be concerned about, but I don't think again we are at a kind of a, a shooting war on all a, a major shooting war on all these fronts, but more this kind of low intensity boil. Okay. Um... Liam, Alex, do you have any questions for Mark while we have him? How long can we expect this to go on? I mean, I, obviously, that's a that's like a loaded question, but I'm just thinking about this from a from a political standpoint in terms of I'm thinking electoral impact. Is this something that that we we should like the, the type of um, piracy that's happening here? Is this something that's just sustainable for for an extended period? Um, should we expect this to to, to go on um, indefinitely or? Well, I mean, I think that, you know, this is still under kind of the, you know, uh, the, the authorities that, that the president of the United States has. I don't see any kind of, you know, there's been there's been some kind of, you know, clamor from the left and even from the more kind of from, from the hard right about um, getting congressional approval. I don't think we're at that state, you know, whatsoever. Again, uh, in, in essence, a lot of these are uh, just by definition defensive strikes. Um, but, you know, if, if, if things kind of kick off with again with between Israel and Hezbollah in the north and. Uh, the U.S., uh, you know, using, you know, the, the our, you know, carrier wing um, are actually hitting targets in Lebanon. I think you might get more of a, uh, 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 you know, some some more kind of domestic uh, considerations on that. But, you know, it, it, I, I, I look at, you know, domestic politics here. And, and in, in the one sense, um, it's very easy to criticize the Biden administration. On a, a bit, but this is a, this is tough. You know, Blinken is is faced when he goes to the region. Um with the U.S. not being a kind of an international pariah at all on this, but just a bit isolated um, from the rest of the world based on our blanket support from Israel. I think we're doing the right thing. Um, but then he also finds an Israeli government, uh, the 
government of Prime Minister Netanyahu is not cooperating on kind of some, some of the key issues, particularly talking about the day after. So, um, you know, the domestic side of that is, in my view, uh, the politics side of it is what if the Israelis kind of keep pushing back on this notion of the day after? You know, what does Biden do? Does he threaten to withhold aid? Um, do, do we perhaps abstain rather than veto a U.N. Security Council resolution? As we roll into the to, towards November, I mean, those things are, are kind of, uh, you know, how much does, does Biden actually press the Israelis? Um, I think that's, to me, kind of the biggest electoral issue of, uh, of this in terms of U.S. politics. Okay, there's another thing on my mind, which is last weekend, the IDF announced that they had uncovered a Hamas terror network planning attacks in Europe, Africa, and the Middle East, and including a planned attack on Israel's embassy in Sweden. And I'm wondering what you make of the reports about Hamas planning wider attacks, including in the United States, and whether that's something they're sophisticated enough to do. Because my understanding is that, you know, as terror organizations go, Hamas has been for a long time, you know, uh, kind of a clownish organization and, and not sort of at the level of, you know, ISIS's sophistication. But how should we be thinking about that? Well, I think, you know, that, that's a, it's a great question, certainly something the counterterrorism community is, is going to be really, really focused on domestically in the United States. That's the Joint Terrorism Task Forces. That's the kind of multi you know, level uh, uh, entity housed in FBI offices in, in cities all over the all over the country. Um, and of course, then we have our bilateral intelligence partnerships. But it's the notion of Hamas, which for a long time was a very capable organization in terms of their operations uh, in Israel. Um, but it wasn't forward facing. It wasn't in a sense like like Hezbollah or Al Qaeda or ISIS where they can conduct attacks externally. Now, Hamas does have an extensive overseas network in terms of fundraising. Um, uh, and there, there, there has been some activity in the United States. There was a Hamas operative arrested several years ago, I believe in Brooklyn. But, but again, it was never the notion that they would conduct these attacks externally. That said, um, you know, I don't think anyone wants to be surprised. And so I'm, I'm sure, you know, uh, both law enforcement domestically um, and, and then CIA, NSA, you know, DIA, our, our intelligence uh, organizations with our foreign partners are um, are really looking at this. And then the, the added part of this on top is, of course, Hamas is allied with both Iran and Hezbollah. And both of those, uh, Iran is a state actor, Hezbollah, really the A-team of terrorism, frankly, before Al-Qaeda, they both have uh, very sophisticated external uh, operational capabilities. So, you know, those arrests that, were, that, that we saw in Europe should be of, of concern. Um, clearly, you know, it's going to take some very aggressive counterterrorism uh, uh, activity from uh, with our with our partners overseas. Uh, but this is something where, you know, when they say that, you know, the, the, the light is, is blinking red, I'm, I'm sure that's the, the feeling within the U.S. Uh, USIC on this, because, you know, the, 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 at the end of the day, the longer this conflict um, goes on and if the United States gets more involved, that's the other question. If the U.S. actually, um, you know, is in some way has to end up striking Iran or uh, U.S. is involved uh, militarily with Hezbollah. I think you may see attacks on U.S. facilities, certainly overseas, but perhaps domestically here as well. Okay, uh, last question, then we'll let you go, and then we're gonna we're gonna pivot to the domestic politics of all of this and uh, and Congress. But my question is, if you are if you're sort of just observing what's happening in the Middle East, what event? Or events are you looking for that would signal we're about to go to war with Iran? What would sort of force the U.S.'s hand and our allies' hands into sort of uh, an escalating war uh, that involves Iran and all of these other groups that you've mentioned? I think that if there was a kind of a catastrophic event, such as uh, uh, the Houthis uh, successfully sinking a U.S. Navy warship, killing scores of U.S. sailors, I think you will see 
um, U.S. strikes on Iran. That's number one. Um, and number uh, number two has to do with, again, the, the war in the north between Israel and Hezbollah. If that kicks off in a very you know significant fashion, um, uh, the U.S. then responds militarily in Lebanon. You might see the Iranian proxies then start hitting U.S. bases in Syria and Iraq. That could uh, cause a response. And the, and the final is, again, the terrorism issue. Um, if, if there are terrorist attacks against American facilities, I think more likely overseas, um, but, but even domestically here, and you trace it back to the Iranians, I, I think that would uh, 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 almost, uh, you know, almost certainly call for a, a response. And because ultimately it's the notion of you know, not only holding um, the Iranians responsible, but our, kind of our deterrence capabilities have, uh, will have clearly failed. Um, and so, you know, again, there's the, the regions at a, uh, at, a, at a, a really kind of dangerous time. But again, I think that um, uh, the administration has, has done a fairly good job in trying to mitigate all this. It's just there's room for miscalculation. And one last piece, Ron, that I think we really have to talk about is, you know, the conventional wisdom when we say Iran does not want to escalate or Hezbollah wants to stay in power in Lebanon, does not want to see uh, a, a war uh, with Israel. Remember the conventional wisdom, the conventional analysis about Hamas on October 6th was that it was a there was kind of this detente, this peace with the Israelis that Hamas was happy. They were letting 19,000 workers into Israel. They were much more focused on kind of building the economy in Gaza and the conventional wisdom and the analysis was totally wrong. Hamas, in fact, was had been planning for a year um, for, an, in essence, an invasion of a 3,500-man uh, army in Israel. So I think we have to be, you know, we have to have a little uh, uh, humility here and that's maybe some of our um, our analysis on these groups uh, is wrong and worst-case scenarios certainly should be considered. Okay, Mark, thanks for squeezing in a call on this. We appreciate your insights. Um, and I look forward to putting together a, a longer form discussion on this when we, when we can. Appreciate it. Sure thing, Ron. Thanks so much. Okay, guys. So looking domestically, Biden's taking fire from the extremes of both parties over the strikes on the Houthis. So on the left, Alex, you've got people like Pramila Jayapal and Rokana. And on the right, it's people like Mike Lee. Um, this is over the president's ability to take military action without Congress declaring war, um, something that has come up time and time again. Uh, there's an inherent tension, obviously, between the Constitution giving Congress the power to declare war and the president being the commander-in-chief of the military. And under the War Powers Act, the president can't commit armed forces to military action for more than 60 days without congressional approval. And Biden informed Congress of the attack on Friday, uh, as he was required to do. So that clock is now ticking. My question is, well, there's two real sort of sides to this, the policy Congress question, and then there's the politics of this on the presidential campaign. So um, why don't we take the policy Congress question first, which is uh, what's going to be the tolerance to the military action on the Hill? How are you reading the dynamics there? Uh, I think the tolerance is going to be pretty high in terms of actual direct action. I think you're going to see a lot of, you know, angry press releases, including from, you know, members of Biden's own party, you know, people freely giving quotes to reporters. But in terms of actually reining in the Biden administration, I, I don't see a huge um, appetite for it, in, in part um, because Democrats, you know, don't want, you know, don't want to be seen as, as weak um, when it comes to foreign policy stuff. And uh, Republicans, um, don't have the majority in the Senate. That's my read. Liam? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it is a complicated dynamic. It compounds the coalitional challenge that Biden has keeping the left together. I think in Congress, you have people that that 
that understand this and understand the nuance. But I think it's been interesting to watch the um, the reaction, certainly online and and among people who are already frustrated with the foreign policy uh, stance of of Biden. And it all it all just sort of um, you know the, the the friction there. Um, it the the existing angst over the the administration's position on Israel. Um, and the way this overlays to that, I mean, it's this ancillary conflict that that uh, that is it's not the same. It's it's stems from it at some level. The Houthis are are certainly, you know, citing this as the reason that they're they're taking these these actions. And so it's really hard to separate, even if you think it's the right thing to do. I mean, the thing that I'm thinking about from a political standpoint is and the reason I, I was curious about the question of how long this goes on, because this has real impacts on the global economy when you when you think about the impact on the cost of of fuel on the cost of goods as people have to go around the horn of africa rather than coming through um you know the normal shipping lanes and so these are things that even if the foreign policy stuff stays at a low simmer um has real impacts at a time when the Fed and and you know a lot of smart economic minds are, are really trying to see if they can thread this needle, and it seems like they're so close to getting that soft landing we've all been looking for. The last thing you need is shocks to the international trade markets, the international energy markets. Yeah, so I think that's totally right. Um, let's sort of look at how this may impact the presidential campaigns. Uh, and Alex, maybe you can lead off here, but if you think about you know, the, the, the contrast between Trump versus Biden campaigns uh, sort of very, very crudely as one guy, you know, potentially got us into another war in the Middle East, right? That's how it will be uh, spun. And then the other guy, you know, wants America to retreat from the global, global stage and abdicate leadership to China and Russia. Um, how do you think those dynamics then, you know, pit against each other? How does this net out politically? It's been fascinating to watch because Biden... When he came into office, you know, talking to people that had advised him for a long time, one of the things he really wanted to do was to, quote unquote, end the, the war on terror. He wanted to sort of close the book on what he considered that era of American foreign policy. Remember when he was withdrawing from Afghanistan, we, he initially announced the withdrawal date as September 11th, 2021, literally the 20 year anniversary. And so a big part of what he wanted to do was to was to extricate uh, America from the Mideast. And what we're seeing, you know, I think it's possible that we may look back on this era um, as just the, the wars on terror, one sort of elongated, because every single time there is a quote unquote pivot to, to Asia or to China, um, the, the region still keeps sucking us back in. In terms of how he's navigating this politically, you know, and Liam's point uh, was was really smart is the longer this this goes on, the also bigger chance there is for the miscalculation that they were talking about before or, you know, an attack on American troops. Now, Biden has made it very clear that he wants to de-escalate and to try to still sort of, you know, patch ba this back together, um, you know, his Middle East uh, agenda. But the problem is that if, you know, the domestic politics can change, you know, immediately, uh, if there is a huge attack on U.S. troops, you can you know go back in American history, whether or not it's you know the Lusitania or you know and more controversially the the Gulf of Tonkin. And when you're going into a presidential year, uh, when you know the the rest of the party is basically saying that you're weak, um, this could escalate 
very quickly. And you know, the the last thing I'll say um, uh, while I'm vamping here is that uh, you know Donald Trump's rhetoric is so interesting. You know, to your point, he's basically saying, uh, you know, I'm going to retreat. You know, America first. You know, get out of these foreign entanglements. But one thing that I have found interesting, not just him, but DeSantis too, is that a lot of the rhetoric, especially when it comes to, to Muslims and Islam, really reminds me of sort of like, you know, early W era uh, Republican politics, too. You have, you know, you know, DeSantis, you know, talking about how Bethlehem's a pigsty now run by Arabs. And you have Donald Trump saying he's going to kick out, you know, foreign students who support Palestine. And I, I, you know, it, it is an interesting combination of isolationism and like, you know, some nativist rhetoric too. Yeah, Liam, I think Alex is making a really great point, which is just that this, the the specter of another war in the Middle East invokes the legacy of W, right? In, in, inevitably. And so with, with sort of that hanging in the background, how do Trump and Biden navigate the politics of war in the Middle East? Uh, and, you know, we can remember all, you know, all the way back to September 2000, uh, 2001, um, we got this um, rally around the flag effect after an attack on the homeland. So George W. Bush enjoyed, you know, you know, monumental domestic support for whatever action he chose to pursue. We didn't have that this time. We don't we didn't have an attack on the homeland. And in this case, this all started because of a military alliance we have with another country in the Middle East, you know, arguably that, you know, a key democratic ally in the Middle East, but it's not the same. So how do you, how do you see this playing out? A couple of things. I mean, I think first and foremost, which just has to be gotten out of the way. And I, I bring me no joy to say this, but I, I just, I don't know that you would get the same rally around the flag effect in this environment, in this cultural environment in this in this zeitgeist it does not seem like the kind of thing if you had something catastrophic happen i don't know that that the that the environment f- fosters the sort of you know civic rallying effect that that we're sort of used to and we tell ourselves stories about so that that worries me number 1 um number 2 i think you have to remember not just in this area but in in all respects Donald Trump's superpower, among other things, is being able to be on all sides of all issues. He doesn't have to be bound by – he has no shame. So like shame doesn't keep him in check in consistency uh, or or like you know telling the truth and things like that. So so he can simultaneously you know, create – I think he sold himself very well as somebody who had opposed the Iraq war even back then, um, which isn't really true. But, you know, he, he said enough things in different places that you can kind of point back and say, yeah, he was prescient and, you know, he was he was ahead of other Republicans on this stuff. Um, he he can say that Hillary's a warmonger, that neocons are bad and tap into things that are all they've been since the since the late W era. I mean, these are issues that the Republican Party never fully reckoned with, in part because you know, you immediately switched from late stage W to like Obama bad, but there are some unresolved issues that you're seeing playing out. I mean, and this, I don't want to skip around too much, but like if you're watching the proxy battle between the Trump people and like Haley and trying to keep her off the ticket, like their underlying issues of that America first stuff, the non-interventionist populist contrarian stuff versus the old school neocon impulses. So like that setting that aside, like that's a real tension. But the beauty of Trump is he doesn't care about these things. So he can just play to whatever audience. And he understands that there is a weariness around war. There's a skepticism around elite foreign policy consensus. And he can lean into that while also saying, hey, I'm the most militaristic guy there is. 
is and I can, you know, I have a bigger nuclear button than you do. So it, none of it has to be consistent because that's not who he is. He just sort of does his thing. Now, the flip side is that Joe Biden, you know, he's been in in politics, you know, in, in elected office for um, you know, 55 years at this point. And if you look at his career and what he's most passionate about, I think the, the pinnacle of his senatorial career, uh, you know, with due respect to, to the judiciary and Supreme Court is, is running the foreign policy or foreign relations committee. He thinks of himself as a foreign policy mind, fancies himself a deep thinker on these issues. So even if the domestic policy things he's willing to farm out to people, he cares deeply about these things. And he thinks deeply about these things that that requires a level of nuance that Trump doesn't have to abide by. So it creates this sort of asymmetry that exists in a lot of things, but particularly in this way. And understanding that there is such a wedge here with respect to the coalition on the left, it allows Trump to pick at these little things and so discontent in a way that I think gives him an advantage, even though he, has, he doesn't have a leg to stand on, but because he, he's not susceptible to the same uh, charges of hypocrisy that most politicians are, um, he can just sort of, you know, uh, kind of run through it. Just to Liam's point, because, um, you know, in New Hampshire, you know, and Trump having it both ways, it was really striking to me where, you know, in, in the on the trail last two weeks, he's like, you know, we're on the ver closer to World War Three than we ever have been. But at the same time, you know, the militaristic side, he keeps bragging. I defeated ISIS. They said it was going to take four years. Like he's bragging about military achievements, too. And, you know, about the intra-party discourse, I went to Nikki Haley's stump speech here in uh in new hampshire last night and you know my my takeaway is like man she would have destroyed mitt romney in the 2012 <laughs> republican primary because she was just like articulating you know why it was so important to keep sent you know supporting ukraine mm. and to support taiwan and to support israel and you know there was a lot of nodding heads in, in the audience, um, but it wasn't there wasn't the roar of the crowd that you that you hear at some of the Trump events. This is interesting to me, and actually dovetails with the question I was just about to ask you, which is the uh, the sort of I see as a on the Democratic side anyway, because as you mentioned, Nikki Haley's making this case, but the sort of argument for or explanation for uh, why American leadership in the world is essential. Um, and it seems to me, and I've mentioned this a few times on the show, but, um, and I will use this as an example, but in Biden's Oval Office address after uh, the October 7th attacks um, in Israel, he, he gave this fantastic speech from the Oval. But for me, it was lacking one thing because he's talking about going you know, overseas. When he goes to Ukraine, he carries with him the idea of America. And I see this very big, you know, wide open lane for any, like, articulate leader to explain to America or make the case to America that American leadership is in the world is good. It's a good thing. Um, or what is, or, or even if you don't think that, what is the role of America in this world that is increasingly sort of, um, uh, as a lot of the sort of foreign policy folks are calling it, uh, multipolar, right? So if we have a sort of disintegrating alliances everywhere, what is the role of American leadership in the world? And I haven't heard a lot of that coming from the Democratic political sort of machine, I think Nikki Haley might be the only one on the Republican side who's actually doing it. So that leaves a big vacuum in terms of what the hell we're doing here. And in order to sell a war, you have to explain to people what the hell we're doing here. Yeah, well, you know, I think one 
one problem with that is, you know, Joe Biden, despite having, you know, I think he he can rally himself and, and do these good speeches, but he's not in a place at 81 years old where he can be doing this every single day and make a dynamic and uh, make a dynamic speech in terms of, you know, some of the the some of the reason I also think goes back to something Liam said before, which is, um, you know, people are also I think politicians are 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 listening to their voters and reacting to their voters rather than trying to lead them somewhere they may not want to go. And the fact is that, uh, you know, there was a, you know, George W. Bush, you, you go back to that second inaugural address. It was a full throated articulation of America's role in the in leadership. And I think that there is a a a deep skepticism um, in America, a worn outness um, mm. in the feeling that their lives that like, yeah, it's great. You know, that, that sounds good, but you got to make my life better first. And I think you are seeing that attitude on both, uh, you know, throughout the, the country. And that's why I think a lot of politicians are not making that argument is because they sense that voters may not want to hear it. Let's turn to the Democratic primary. Uh, New Hampshire is right around the corner as we tape this on Thursday. You're hearing it on Friday. A lot of people have spent a lot of time talking about the Republican primary where Trump is leading by 30 points, but not a lot of time talking about the Democratic primary where Biden has a similar lead. There are a couple of things to factor in here. One is the changes to the Democratic primary calendar. So in February 2023, the DNC essentially rubber-stamped the reconfigured primary calendar that the White House proposed last year. They moved South Carolina to first. They did this because South Carolina is better for Biden, the state where he emerged as the front-runner in the 2020 primary after Bernie had won in New Hampshire, uh, and then following South Carolina, it's Nevada, and then New Hampshire, uh, followed closely by Georgia and Michigan. But, 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 New Hampshire actually has their first-in-the-nation primary status enshrined in state law. And they are sticking with their date next week. Um, And Biden did not even bother to file his paperwork to run there. Uh, So his name won't be on the ballot on Tuesday. However, uh, key state Democratic leaders are running a write-in campaign on his behalf. Uh, So the DNC has responded by saying, you know, they are not going to award delegates at their convention in August based on the New Hampshire primary. Basically, you can vote for whoever the hell you want, but we're not going to count them. Which kind of offends your democracy sensibilities. Uh, Dean Phillips and Marianne Williamson are on the ballot. Uh, Phillips is a Minnesota congressman who's decided to challenge Biden for the nomination. He's trailing by about 30 points, New Hampshire. His family owns the distilling company that makes uh, UV vodka and Belvedere. So he's got a lot of money. He can self-fund his campaign. uh, And he's been focused on trying to jumpstart his campaign in New Hampshire. He hasn't been drawing an ideological distinction between himself and the president. Uh, In fact, in Congress, he's voted with Biden 100% of the time. But in a recent profile, Phillips told uh, Ben Jacobs that if Biden was polling better against Trump, Phillips wouldn't even be running. So the question is, what does success or uh, or at least a non-embarrassing showing look like for Biden in the state where he's chosen not even to be on the ballot? And what does success look like for somebody like Dean Phillips, I guess? So I think the problem is, and this goes back to the original sin of trying to meddle with the primary calendar, uh, it, it probably made sense at the time. I'm sure that they that they had a, a reasoning to do it. But given that there was never going to be a real primary, I'm not sure quite why he decided to take off, um, you know, important kind of grassroots and grass tops in key early states. So, um, you know, he sort of made his bed. And he's going to have to lie in it in the sense that 
he's not going to get hugely gaudy numbers, the kind that that will, um, you know, say, oh, wow, Biden's stronger than we thought in any event. He's going to be dogged because, you know, the fact that he had to run this right in campaign that I don't know, still there's a percentage that don't vote for him. Uh, but look, it's very obvious from from the performance of Dean Phillips in the polls, from the performance of Dean Phillips on the stump, that there's not a market for what he's selling. I think the the premise was interesting to test, which is, oh, this president looks and sounds weak. People say they want an alternative. I present myself and I will be greeted as a liberator. That's just not the way it works. I mean, people people might say they want a generic Democrat, but they don't literally want a generic random congressman. So um, I think there's no way for Dean Phillips to come out of this looking improved or like he has a shot. The only um, the the only challenge for Biden is just running up those numbers as much as possible. Um, at some level, he's competing with Haley. And um, I think that's that's one of the tricky things is um, as Haley seeks to pull off the big upset over Trump, she's going to be relying on independents and Democrats. And that's typically what happens in New Hampshire is you have a big pool of independents. And when there's not a competitive um, contest on the Democratic side, you see people cross over. So um, so, you know, I think both things can happen. I don't think there's going to be enough uh, of that interest to get Haley over the top. But but I think that comes directly out of uh, out of Biden's um, right in pocket if if it's going uh, to Haley. So, um, you know, I think it was probably a mistake to meddle with this at this stage. He probably could have done that maybe after he gets uh, renominated um, in the long term. It probably makes sense for Democrats to shift around that primary calendar. But otherwise, it comes across as a little bit vindictive um, and you can hear it in the ambivalence of New Hampshire leaders saying, I really hate what he did, but he's my guy. And uh, it's 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 a complicated um, uh, political marriage at this point. Alex, what are you thinking? Well, I, I just wanted to add one one other thing, you know, d- despite, uh, you know, some of the criticism of Biden from Democrats and, and his political team as being hapless, you know, Dean Phillips is getting a, a real lesson in uh, really tough politics. Because not only, you know, regardless of the, you know, the sort of kerfuffle over New Hampshire, um, Dean Phillips is no longer going to be on the ballot and or is not going to be on the ballot in Florida, North Carolina, uh, probably Wisconsin. Um, and that's because those part those state parties have individual rules and they rule that Joe Biden is going to be the only one on the ballot. And Dean Phillips has tried to make hay of this issue. Um, but that also means that this is a delegate fight and he's not going to be eligible for delegates. And it's been really interesting to see the Biden team basically just bring down the hammer um, to avoid any sort of competitive primary. Yeah. So uh, actually, I think Dean may actually come on the show to explain some of this because I've been wondering, like, what exactly is the path here? Um, Because I, I don't, I'm not, I'm not really clear on what the play is unless he's just sort of counting on you know, Biden having a stroke or something, and then there's a free-for-all. I don't know. But uh, th- to me, there is there, there is this contradiction. Maybe this is why Biden's getting heat from within the Democratic Party. But to me, there's kind of a contradiction between campaigning on democracy, as he has pivoted to now, but also stifling competition within the primary by, by you know, screwing with the primary calendar, which we've talked about on the show before. It's quite normal for incumbent presidents to not have debates, to, you know, uh, essentially not behave as if there's a primary happening. But it is sort of a step further to rearrange the primary calendar for your own benefit. And and it does feel like it's a bit anti-democratic. How serious do you think the, you know, the the criticism within the party has been about that? 
I mean, it's definitely anti-democratic, but it's also, you know, he's the incumbent president and he controls a lot of the levers of the party. And it's not it's I guess it's like it's anti-democratic, but it's also not unusual. Um, And, um, you know, in terms of the play for Dean Phillips, you know, and I also don't think there's going to be a ton of criticism of of Joe Biden. There's going to be some, you know, I think elite criticism of the moves. But I'm skeptical that a lot of voters are going to really rally um, behind Dean Phillips because they're mad that he's off the Florida Democratic primary ballot. Now, I could be wrong, but uh, I, I still am a bit skeptical. You know, I did go to a Dean Phillips event up in this little town in New Hampshire the other night. And, it, you know, he sort of did articulate, you know, he said sort of what you just said about Biden having a stroke, but he didn't say it in that many words. He basically said, I'm, I'm, remember, like, this is a marathon, not a sprint. I am staying in after New Hampshire and I'm staying in because I do not believe that Joe Biden is capable of finishing this marathon, Um, you know, which I thought was sort of a, uh, you know, he he was he was sort of insinuating it, but not quite, um, I think. But most people in the audience, I think, probably understood kind of what he was saying. Mm. Yeah, I think. And also a lot of people kind of here's some truth in that. They also have a lot of skepticism. Like, I mean, the age thing is very real. So, Ron, if we're thinking, if we're thinking about a, a measure of success for, for Biden, um, I, I had to go back and look because I was curious and, and I was actually surprised myself. What I do remember from 2012 is Obama having, you know, bleeding 40 plus percent of the vote in like Appalachian states to, to colorful characters and that kind of thing. He actually only got 80 percent, 81 percent in New Hampshire. Um, it was a, a cast of characters it was like Vermin Supreme getting getting votes up there. But uh, but but that's an interesting um, it's an interesting test to see if if this right, concerted write in campaign, as opposed to the ignored campaign of 2012 with this concerted write in campaign, can Biden run up those sort of Obama 2012 type numbers uh, at the 80, 81 percent level? Yeah. Can he pull a Murkowski? <laughs> exactly. Last question uh, to both of you, and then we'll turn to our look aheads. But there, you know, he's mentioned a few times, uh, Phillips, sort of there's this media blackout around covering him and, you know, whether or not that's true, I think is debatable. Um, but the Republican campaign has gotten a ton of attention, as we've talked about earlier, uh, all over, all over sort of print and TV media. Um, and this is despite Trump's huge lead. But it's largely been a conversation about the other candidates. Why isn't there a similar conversation happening about the Democratic primary? Um, because I don't see very much of it, if any of it, on sort of traditional mainstream outlets. Do you have any thoughts on that, either of you? There definitely is a media blackout when it comes to certain stations. I mean, since Dean Phillips announced his campaign, MSNBC has interviewed him exactly zero times. And and that's even to comment on things like, you know, Israel Gaza war. And, you know, he some of his committees are are relevant um, to that. So uh, and, you know, CNN, you know, despite holding town halls for people like Vivek Ramaswamy and, you know, lower polling, you know, or similar polling candidates, you know, didn't have a town hall for Dean Phillips. So I think there is a, a bit of of that, um, you know, at the same time, you know, in some of their defense, you know, this primary, even though the, the Republican primary, as we've discussed, has not been that competitive and we assumed it, you know, I think it's basically coming to fruition what we expected as of like six, seven, eight months ago. Um, the Democratic primary is even less competitive. So, uh, you know, uh, and as we discussed, you know, it would be much more interesting if if Biden had a primary opponent 
um, in like a Cornell West model, someone that was challenging him on an issue area, especially like Israel Gaza. At the moment, you know, Dean Phillips' main issue, I mean, he has like some different, some various policy differences, but his main issue is that he thinks, you know, Biden uh, isn't electable. And, and part of that is because he's too old. And um, so I think that the that sort of uh, friction is just not as interesting as, you know, someone that would have a real ideological difference. Yeah. Liam, any thoughts? I think two things can be true. Number one is that, um, uh, you know, in a vacuum, um, the news uh, cable, the Sunday shows are hungry for hungry enough for content and for guests that it would be totally normal to see Dean Phillips and somebody like a Dean Phillips um, on on the the guest roster and the fact that he's not as very conspicuous in the sense that they know they don't want to do things that hurt their sources and, and hurt their um, contacts with the Biden campaign. That said, you could put Dean Phillips on every Sunday show every Sunday and it wouldn't create a market for what he has. It's the same reason that, you know, Asa Hutchinson was an afterthought in the presidential race, despite having great credentials and, you know, being nominally, you know, a serious politician he was on very frequently and it didn't get him, you know, but a handful of votes. He came in, what, like fifth in behind Ryan Brinkley, who I don't even know what that is, who that is, came behind him in Iowa. So I think, you know, Phillips can be mad about this and maybe be right about this, but it's not the reason he's not connecting. Yeah, I think I think that's right. I also think Alex's point is is important, which is like they're not even talking to him about non-campaign stuff. Like he's on the House Armed Services Committee uh, and they won't even talk to him about foreign affairs stuff. So I think that's, I think that's quite conspicuous. Now that we have caught up on some of the most important stories this week, what are you watching develop? Alex, what'd you bring? Um, I'm really watching this special counsel report that Merrick Garland has uh, promised to release about Biden's handling of classified documents. Now, Donald Trump talks about this all the time on the trail um, in order to create some sense of equivalency. But my understanding is that this uh, special counsel report, uh, which will detail about, you know, the the documents that were in Biden's garage next to the Corvette, you know, will be, there is fear that this is going to be politically damaging um, in a way that I, I don't think is quite appreciated in Washington. Um, besides giving Trump ammunition, uh, I, I think there's a possibility that you could get the equivalent of like the Mar-a-Lago bathroom photo um, release or, or something like it that would be just very embarrassing and, and will create sort of a, a whirlwind. And we don't know when the report will be released, but uh, it will probably be uh, in the next few weeks here. Yikes. Yeah, I think you're right. That will be read as equivalents. Um, Liam, what'd you bring? This might be cheating, but this relates to the day job. Um, there was a tax deal released um, early this week. It's probably something I could have I could have written on a you know cocktail napkin a year ago. It's been uh, the the broad kind of themes that that uh, Republicans and Democrats have been dancing around for some time here. Um, this is just the House Ways and Means Committee, so Republican majority, and the Senate Finance Committee, so Democratic majority, working together on trying to do two things. Number one, um, resuscitate a number of business-related tax provisions that were part of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act that were sort of made temporary in order to save money 
to to do a lots of the things that that the TCJA did. Um, they were not meant to expire, but because Democrats were in control and uh, didn't want to do things for business without doing for things for working families, were sort of two years past um, uh, getting a fix for those. So Republicans want that. And on the other side, of course, uh, the the temporary increase to the child tax credit under the American Rescue Plan ran out. Um, I think another thing that wasn't intended to run out, Democrats expected it would be popular enough um, and, and supported enough among Democrats they could keep it going. Um, so this deal uh, would tentatively um, boost not to the same level as 2021, but boost the child tax credit, make it more refundable, index it to inflation. Uh, both of these things would be really building a bridge to the end of 2025, which the look ahead is frankly how much of our tax code and how much of our economic policy will be up for grabs um, depending on the outcome of this election. So that's number one. But number two, in the interim, it's going to be a really interesting test of whether normal things that have broad bipartisan support can still happen in this um, dysfunctional house, this this sort of uh, weird moment politically as we head into election season. So um, there's a markup um, happening tomorrow. Um the House has to decide, the leadership has to decide whether it makes sense for Speaker Johnson to put this on the floor. The idea would be to get this to the floor when they get back from recess. Um, the urgency is because Democrats want this to be retroactive. So it would it would essentially put money in people's pockets, refund checks in people's pockets for this year, uh, which would then help them obviously coming into November. That's, by the way, a reason why some Republicans might not want to do this deal because it would be a win for President Biden heading into that election year. There's a lot of lot of uh, game to be played here because the Senate hasn't had its say, but it's going to be an interesting test of whether normal things with broad support can happen. Oh, that's good, Liam. Okay, before we flip over to Politicology Plus, we're going to talk about Davos. Where can everybody find you on the internet, Alex? Uh, you can find me on X slash Twitter, whatever. I'm at Alex Tomp. So A-L-E-X-T-H-O-M-P. Awesome. Liam? I'm at, at LP Donovan. Got the Substack, lpdonovan.substack.com. And uh, on the Lobby Shop, wherever you, get, wherever you hear fine podcasts. I just started listening to the latest episode. It's really good. Yeah, uh, we dug into immigration policies. So yeah, it's, I know. Uh, typical for you and me. <laughs> All right, everybody. Thanks for listening today. If you have questions about anything we discussed today, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. Whether it's an episode idea, a topic recommendation, or just a simple note about what you thought, we love to hear from you, and we might even use it on an upcoming episode. Also, if you can head over to the Apple Podcast app and rate us five stars and leave a review there, we'd really appreciate it. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. I'm Ron Steslow, and I'll see you in the next episode.